0: AuraKui aims to provide a global student mentoring platform. Whether it's academic subjects, locations, or interests, our algorithm provides curated one-on-one matches between high school mentees and university mentors. With a pre-launch presence of mentors from some of the world's best universities, AuraKui aims to connect students on an international level. You can sign up to either be a mentee or a mentor at AuraKui.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Insights with Experts. Joining us here today, we are very very fortunate to have Mr. Julian Lear. Julian has done many things over his life. He's a writer, he's an educator, he's a mentor. He's started up numerous initiatives and he currently um, is working and he co-founded at the Future of Governance Agency, otherwise known as FOGA, which uh, I think we might learn quite a lot about in this interview here. Um, So Julian, just to start off with, how are you?
1: I am very well, we are out of lockdown or slowly out of lockdown in Melbourne. Summer is starting so it's very blissful.
0: Yeah that's awesome. Um, also with us here we have Naylan Al. So Naylan is a current first year student at the University of Melbourne. He's taking a major in economics and politics and international relations as well. Naylan, how are you?
2: I'm doing very well. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Awesome, awesome. So, Julian, uh, I think let's just get straight into it. Um, the first question which I wanted to ask is essentially: Can we get like a little overview of your journey? Like, what inspired you to tackle societal issues, and perhaps most recently found Foga? Mm. So, okay, I won't. I won't go too
1: long into the prehistory of it. But essentially, I was I was born in France, fascinated with language, writing, and understanding power from a very young age, went on to study France, worked at university, became a writer, fell in love with an Australian, followed him to Australia and then discovered Asia. That was a big turning point in my, uh, in my life, moving to this country where I saw a kind of a, a possibility to invent new ways of uh, bringing together the traditions of Europe and Asia. So when I moved to Australia in 2008, I decided to learn Chinese and then went on to do all sorts of things with uh, China, founded an organization called Marco Polo Project that was looking at bringing the voices of Chinese intellectuals to Western readers through collaborative translation, and then was involved in other uh, kind of initiatives that were around uh, cultural collaboration, dialogue, education, etc. And then in two thousand and sixteen, I got a call. It was almost like being, you know, on the Avengers, except it was the Swedish version because the call came from Sweden, and it was from an old friend of mine who had found themselves um, the executive director of a foundation in Stockholm that called the Global Challenges Foundation that was looking at um, prompting a global rethink of global governance structures in order to reduce the risk or global catastrophic risks. Essentially, global catastrophic risks, whatever can kill a billion people in a short period of time. We're looking at uh, nuclear war and nuclear winter scenarios. We're looking at catastrophic climate change, environmental collapse or AI going rogue or the like, uh, scenarios like super volcanoes and asteroid collisions. And global governance is all of the systems we have in place on the planet that allow us to coordinate our actions and, and And reduce or mitigate all of those risks, and the systems we have at the moment are not very good, or not quite up to the task of protecting us effectively. So working in this foundation, we organized a very large prize competition. The uh, foundation was funded by one of the wealthiest men of, in in Sweden, a man who made a fortune in the stock exchange, and at the end of his life said, "I now need to work on large- scale challenges, and this is what I want to be." My legacy. And the, the vision here was to organize a prize competition, which is a way to call for distributed intelligence around the world. There was $5 million on the table, and we got over 2,000 finalized applications on proposals to either upgrade the UN or create uh, new structures or deploy new technological solutions that might help us coordinate our action globally to live essentially in a slightly safer world. And so that happened in 2018. And at the outset of this prize competition, there were, there were two things really that we realized with um, Karen, the friend that was, I, I co-founded uh, Fogia with. Uh, one was that there is a whole lot of innovation that is being done. There's a lot of people thinking about how we can organize our systems better, but they're not necessarily communicating or sharing their insights in the most effective manner and meanwhile there are a whole range of areas where people are in power whether it's bureaucratic institutions governments etc and they're looking for new ideas to organize and they don't they not necessarily have access to that information so we were looking at kind of bringing the two together essentially uh, giving a shape to those new inventions and innovations on how we can organize decision making uh, solving conflict and enforcing decision and, and kind of present them to the people who would be able to put them in practice. And then the other thing that we discovered is that in surprisingly high levels of power, people kept repeating this thing, which is, I, I know I ho- I ought to know that, but I don't. And the world is evolving and is changing so fast. There is so much happening that we lack both a, a, a common vocabulary to, to describe structures of power, governance, and and the radical changes we're facing, but also we have a whole range of people who have not quite caught up with it. And and for all of us, there's a sense of embarrassment that is attached to ignorance, but particularly ignorance of things that are of major importance. And so the other kind of um, drive behind FOGA is to create simple tools that might quickly allow people to catch up on the most fundamentals so that at least we have the common building blocks and the common knowledge to start having better conversations, better dialogues, and better uh, changes in the way that we organize ourselves uh, based on uh, more, more informed um, w- ways of thinking. So that's really what uh, what was the drive. And I think behind it on a personal level, it's, it's kind of creating conditions for greater freedom, which is what happens when people are uh, more able to make decisions together. Uh, and it's about educating people. It's really about being in a world where people understand what is happening better so that we can we can you know coordinate our actions and and, and work together um, in in a more fruitful manner
0: yeah, I think there's a lot that we can probably talk about in that answer that you gave, but I just want to specifically focus on the fact that you talk about how like the future it's very uncertain, things are constantly changing you know they they say that the only constant thing is really uncertainty it's that we, we don't really know what the future actually holds and talking about that that leads in very nicely onto our next question which is essentially you know we we know that this future it will be uncertain i mean we had no clue covid was going to come in, in the future we know that way it is inevitable way we will be facing these points where you know things will change however how do we prepare perhaps the current people of today the current students of now to actually you know prepare for this change and kind of mitigate the effects of them i mean yeah i guess (laughs) so there's a thing about
1: covid that makes me hopeful which is that i see it as a wake-up call for all of us that something not directly predictable might happen that throws all of our plans flying in the air and it's not, not completely unpredictable. There have been pandemics in the past that have caused havoc. There have been like the, the, the largest uh, moments of large scale deaths uh, for humanity in recorded history were plagues in the fifth century and 14th century um, when up to 10% of the world population died. Nothing, COVID is, is much smaller in magnitude. So we know that there are pandemics, that that can happen, but we tend to forget, we tend to act as if the world of tomorrow would be exactly like the world of today, and that all of our structures were very stable, which is actually delusional. This is not the world that we live in. And so I think that the the first and most important thing that we can learn uh, as a society and as young people is to first accept, develop awareness that those risks are there, and therefore organize our lives in a manner that is more, so there's various words, anti-fragile, resilient. But one word that I like is survive. Uh, gear it towards survival. Essentially, you're, you continue to succeed until you die. Uh, and if you can design life for yourself and for the people about, around you that is less likely to be extinguished when something unforeseen happens, this is probably very wise. And so then it goes into a developing a mindset and, and a mode of thinking that is probably more risk aware than what we currently have, so anticipating what might go wrong and what am I likely to do uh, in relation to what might go wrong, particularly what might go extremely wrong uh, that's one uh, one thing another thing is to develop a life that's probably more balanced like one thing we probably discovered during COVID is that our local networks of support became incredibly important like the friends that kept in touch with us probably kept us sane our kind of local shops cafes etc suddenly were the like the one point where we could go during the day that kept us nurtured Um, and so valuing those and investing in maintaining those local relationships and those close relationships that are not necessarily about, you know, our big career plans is extremely important because when things go wrong, that's one thing we might fall back on. Having multiple careers, multiple gigs may also be a way to rebound uh, better. Having a strong personal relationship with, or a healthy relationship with a partner is probably uh, very good. So, kind of focusing on what we can do to be resilient and anti-fragile is, is essential. And kind of behind that, if I was to kind of reflect on what, what might support, support that resilience, a lot of it has to do with um, like understanding that we all have multiple identities, multiple roles, multiple communities that we're a part of and kind of uh, articulating that to ourselves, that within those communities, we may not excel everywhere. And so rather than trying to be perfect in all of the roles that we have, rather say, oh, it might be better to play multiple roles, even if there are some where we're not excellent, so that we're able to shift from one community to the other and, and, and kind of nurture that and, and create it as a space for, that can welcome others, rather than putting all of our identity, all. Of our identi- all I don't know. All of our eggs in one identity, so to speak. Um, so that's that's one thing that I would say is uh, very important in order to to deal with uncertainty. Um, yeah, I think that's probably the the one that I would put forward. And then the other one I would put forward, which is actually a different type of skill, is to is to develop good judgment when when you're working in a state of of great uncertainty, you cannot directly trust your elders to tell you what to do because they don't know, because things are changing too fast, um, especially your immediate elders. And you yourself cannot necessarily predict the short and long-term impact of your actions because the level of chaos is is too high. And when that is the case, kind of following your inner compass, relying on your intuition, building virtue, being very clear about the values that you hold and what it is that you want, how it is that you want to show up in the world it is particularly important because the worst thing that can happen is if you betray yourself in order to reach an outcome and chaos is such that you don't reach that outcome. Uh, that's probably uh, something that, that, that's particularly harmful to yourself and others. And so, yeah, developing that sound judgment, de- developing that broken compass and creating conditions where that is possible for you and others. So don't, don't become part of a system that is broken. Uh, don't, or don't, don't make it a critical part of your identity that you are part of a system that is highly vulnerable and very broken. It's probably a way to create this resilience and to, and to maintain your capacity to make good judgment. Um, yeah, I hope that I, I, I don't know how much that makes sense, but that's what I
0: would Yeah. Do. Yeah. It was fine. It was great. Um, now, for my last question, I, I, I actually want to keep talking about this idea of change, but not so much as, as to how we react to change, but as opposed to how we actually enact change. You know, if we look at, if we look at the news, if we look at everything that's happening now in the media, we have these macro trends, you know, rise of China, all these things, which are ha- ha- happening on an international scale. And what students can often feel in this, t- in this time is while we study it, while we spend, you know, six hours a week reading up and all these kinds of things, we often think, how can we ourselves enact change in these kinds of macro trends which we see? So how do, how do you think students can have a voice in not just localized trends, but in like international global macro trends? And what perhaps available channels can we use to sort of advocate this change that comes from us? So,
1: I, I, the first thing I would I would I would invite I would invite people to reflect on that desire to have a voice and kind of expand that desire and say so it's great to have a voice. It's great to have a brain. It's great to have good ears. It's great to have a heart, and you need to, you need to cultivate all of this. Uh, and so the, there's various ways that um, it's essentially. I think the basis is that. It's it's pointless to have a voice if others are not equipped to hear it. And so it's much better to be heard, to to say less but be heard more than to speak a lot to people who do not listen. And so the the, the biggest thing that I would kind of invite you and and students and young people to reflect on, and everyone really, it's not just young people, (laughs) is How can you create conditions where others are more likely to listen to you? And it's probably not to shout at them. Uh, Because if I start shouting at you, you're unlikely to listen to me and vice versa. So then there's various ways that you can cultivate that capacity to be heard more. Um, One has to do with trying, if, if speaking louder doesn't work, try speaking softer and it can have surprisingly good effects a second is how how much empathy have you developed for your counterpart and that maybe by cultivating systematic empathy for the people on the other side you might be able to find a way of speaking to them that resonates much more and it can be about like the way you craft your message but also even the tone of voice that you that you adopt and and how you speak to them and that like looking at that, for instance, you're talking of you know, big, big changes in the world, et cetera. Very often, we, we're often deluded about the way other people relate to their culture. There's a, a common cognitive bias, which is that I am a complex individual and I come from a culture, but obviously I, I relate to it complexly. But you, you are Chinese, French, Spanish, whatever, and you are completely driven by your own culture and you do not have that complexity. Uh, and so you relate to the other as if they were a robot, rather than somebody who is like you trying to come to terms with a complex world. So building systematic empathy for other people from other cultures is useful. And there's ways you can do that. Like a simple way, listen to music in other languages and watch TV series from other uh, countries as a, as a first step. Something that's very easy to do. Uh, like switch to your Netflix to or whatever, your VPN to another country and, and get these other defaults. Another thing you can do, and, you know, looking at elders um, or older people, you're talking to an older white man who's sitting at the head of a company that's destroying climate change. It's very hard not to be angry at them. But if you were to be able to have compassion, they've invested all of their life in a system that is likely to be broken and cause, you know, destruction of the planet. How would you feel if you were in their place? And how would you like to be spoken to? And then maybe adopting that tone, that, that might help. It's very difficult to do, but it's um, so that empathy, not as an end in self, but empathy as a way to create a communication channel that is more likely to lead to the other person hearing you is, is probably a very good thing to do. And at the, like beyond the individual level, there's thinking around when, like whenever you're talking to people, whether it's one-on-one or in a conference or in a call, How do you organize speech? How do you organize discourse? How do you organize conversations? And are you organizing it in such a way that it's maximally conducting to good judgment and empathetic, uh, useful, fruitful, in-depth conversation? Or is it just going to be a way for people to project their egos onto everyone else while the the audience blanks out? And what can you do to, to transform that? So I think that that would be, that's probably what I would invite young people to focus on because it's, it it might lead to your voice being heard faster. And even if it doesn't, you're going to be, at least you're going to be learning a lot about other people in the meantime. So if it was not to work, you would still probably gain quite a lot from it. And as time passes, you'll become better and better at the game. And then you're more likely to be able to, to influence. And it's, critically important for the world that young people who have not been broken by the system exert great influence as fast as possible. Uh, And so, yeah, that's what I would, that's the main thing I would probably
0: uh, recommend. Yeah, I think there are lots and lots of really interesting points that you were saying saying there specifically about how, you know, we acknowledge how other people are going to look at us and specifically how we can change ourselves to really have other people, you know, really hear what we have to say. And I think that's really, really interesting. Yeah, um, you know, those are all the questions which I had. And I think now it's time to switch over to Naila now. Uh, all yours, mate.
2: Thanks a lot, Sean. Julian, I, I really appreciate the discussion on um, on empathy, in particular, when, when talking about um, how to get people to hear you. Because um, there's an Indian politician named Shashi, Shashi Tharoor, Excellent guy. And um, he noted how being Minister of State in External Affairs is like standing in a cemetery. There's a lot of people under you, but no one is listening. And um, that wasn't necessarily because of his decorum. He's a very respectable guy, but it's because of the intrinsic structure of government. But he said as he went on, he learned um, the significance of empathy to create that communication channel uh, in in Parliament and with the people. So I think that's a very uh, pertinent point. Um, which we can extrapolate to the youths of today. So I really like that. Um, my questions uh, center m- more around FOGA in particular because I'm really fascinated by the work that um, you're doing with FOGA. Uh, I, I know I know that you're working on a project, a book titled How to Rule a World, a Guide to the Establish and Emerging Tools for Power and Governance in the 21st Century. Um, I'd really like to hear more about this and to understand what you perceive as Fundamental flaws in in current government systems are the necessary path to address those weaknesses.
1: So, thank you. Uh, So I might I might tell you about the book first and then and then look at your question about uh, flaws in in government. So the book is um, It's about power and governance. It's very simple. Power is your capacity to materialize your will in the world and more particularly your capacity to do that by coordinating the action of other people. And you can do that as an individual and you can do that as a group. So there's various ways that you can exert power. You can, you know, you can threaten people to with bad consequences if they don't do what you say, and then they will follow, or you can give them a reward or you can charge, uh, charm them, but power tends to be transactional or exerted in the moment. Uh, it, for it to be exerted over the longer term and therefore to allow for more people to come together and, and do bigger things, you start to, you, you need to put into place mechanisms, structures, uh, systems of laws. And that's what we call governance. It's, it's essentially all of the systems that currently exist and that might be developed in the future that allow for the ongoing exercise of power. And that's making decisions, enforcing decisions, and solving conflicts when a decision, when there's but disagreement among the people. And so what the book is is doing, it's, it's structured in two parts. The first part is looking at 30 current tools of governance. It's what we have at the moment, what has been created to exert power. To give you examples of what they are. So one of those is borders. We have territories and we have decided that there are imaginary lines and that if you're on one side of the border, you will not have the same right or belonging as if you're on the other side of it. There is one which is market, which is a way to organize trade. There is currency. There is uh, trademarks and patents. There's also media, separation of power, constitutions, etc., etc. Thirty of them, and that's how the world is structured at the moment. When we talk about governance, it's mainly like governments and and the structure of nation states, but also local forms of government, organizations of community groups, uh, organizations, even families have governance systems, and those tools can be found in different forms in all of those levels. So any, any human group has something that we might call governance in it. The second half of the book now is looking at the way that technological change uh, is possibly giving us new tools and new ways to organize those governance systems. And the, the, the technologies that we're talking about are particularly uh, three. One is the, the artificial intelligence. So the capacity to um, essentially predict uh, through the the strength of algorithms. Uh, The internet is the capacity to exchange information on a large scale across the the world, and blockchain is a way to exchange value uh, around the world. And on this basis, we can see new ways of organizing power that are uh, emerging, and that's what we're describing in the second half of the book. So that goes from cryptocurrencies, a new way to organize money independently from the nation state, to uh, algorithmic uh, predictions and, and algorithmically supported uh, forms of regulation to systems of mass surveillance to uh, transform the way that we uh, control people to um, planet centering norms. So, so systems of value that, look in, that take into consideration um, impact on the planet or initiatives to unify uh, governance at a, at a global level. So that's really what the, what the book is about. So now, looking at the like the question you had, which was around what um, what may be flawed with uh, systems of, of governance. So one thing that uh, I would say is, is is probably one of the most problematic at the moment is that our governance structures are not well tailored for the type of challenges that we have. If we look at like what's probably the biggest uh, challenge at the moment, arguably is environmental collapse and climate change. So uh, human industry, uh, economy, uh, transformation of the world, extraction, blah, 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 is creating conditions where if we do not change what we do, we might entirely lose the planet that we have and it will be incapable of of, uh, regenerating itself. Now, solving that is highly important and everyone wants to solve it, except we do not currently have a governance body that is powerful enough and equipped to deal with this challenge because this challenge is global and the governance that we have is primarily national. So uh, power is structured on to a very large extent at the level of nation states, some extent competing businesses, and that is a, a problem that is not uh, in line with the governance systems that we have. So this lack of adequation is is terrible. But if we look at other challenges we have, like ongoing uh, terrible inequality and rising poverty across the world, again, the the biggest poverty is not so much within nation states, but in between nation states. And redistribution of wealth on a global scale is not done greatly uh, because we do not have the great mechanisms to do that. Another challenge that we have is geopolitical change, the rise of China, the rise of the rest, the, uh, the, the demise of the West or the, or the, 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 the transfer of empire. There's all sorts of names for those. And we do not have great mechanisms to allow for that to happen peacefully. Whereas, you know, if, if there was a shift of power from Sydney to Melbourne in Australia, that would be handled much better than a shift of power from the US to China. And there is no intrinsic reason why one should be more difficult than the other except that we do not have the governance mechanisms to handle it.
2: I, I really appreciate that answer. It's, that's a very interesting discussion. And I completely agree that we're moving more from um, a realist perspective to this constructivist lens where um, more ideational forms of power resources are becoming increasingly important. You know, We're moving away from power as meaning traditional military might to, to these ideational forms of power where a country's identity and their their um, domestic politics become increasingly important on the global stage as the state seeks legitimacy um, from other states. You know, Joseph Nye's concept of soft power whereby states can uh, seduce and co- co-opt other um, states into their sphere of influence is becoming um, very much a reality as we see the rise of China. Um, you spoke about how we need to develop this capacity and mechanism to effectively enact um, change like the redistribution of wealth. Now, with technology becoming increasingly integrated into governmental practices, are there equal efforts being made to protect such systems from cyber attacks and other susceptibilities?
1: So I, I guess like you're, you're, you're raising one very important uh, question, I think, and one that we're probably not discussing quite enough, which is that, Okay, what has enabled this globally connected world that we enjoy, and and one of the hopes for the future is that the capacity to co- to collaborate that comes from the, the the cyber world, and that that cyber world is highly vulnerable uh, to concerted attacks from whether it's states, rogue agents, terrorist groups, uh, random individuals, or its own you know its own structural weaknesses, and here again, there is, so here's another failure of uh, governance. There is no clear entity. I mean, there's all sorts of bodies looking after the internet and they're they're working reasonably well, but there is no strong uh, entity that is quite capable of guaranteeing cybersecurity on a global scale. Uh, And that, again, is uh, probably one of the dangers that we face. And one of the things that we uh, probably want to look at is how, how we can construct that uh, like that, that those mechanisms that can at least increase the the likelihood or decrease the likelihood that our uh, infrastructure will catastrophically collapse or that you know it, it will be extremely risky to to, to engage on
2: absolutely I, I, there's, there's, there's certainly vulnerabilities, but I think the movement towards um, a more technological Technologically advanced um, form of government is definitely is definitely necessary to um, to pro- to make any sense of progress moving from here on out. Um, has what has Foga instituted any ideas yet from from ideators into systems of government as of now?
1: So no, we're still we're uh, currently developing the uh, the organization. But there's a few projects that uh, so my co-founder uh, Karen has been working on. One uh, that uh, is discussed on our website is the is the Paris Score, and so the idea here is to use uh, artificial intelligence to create a uh, a score uh, that shows how much uh, your daily activities or your day-to-day activities as an individual or in a company an organization aligned with the goals of the Paris Agreement. And once you set that up, then what that enables is the development of secondary market. Say you've got a high score, maybe there's a, an international thing of youth hostels that offer you a discount, or you can have access to certain services uh, better than others. So it's, it's a way to incentivize environmentally um, or um, environmentally effective um, behavior and, and additional mechanisms that could do that. So it's it's being discussed and developed. Uh, we've also done a bit of research on Mars governance, which is an interesting way to uh, create an intuition pump. If we were to go to Mars, how would we organize uh, societies there? Uh, but those are uh, currently yeah um, initial uh, projects. The book is due to come out early next year, and then uh, we'll have a few, uh, things that we have in the, in the pipeline to, to work after that.
2: That's very interesting. I think creating those secondary markets, um, to foster environmental sustainability and encourage more, um, more benign environmentally benign forms of economic progress is absolutely critical at this stage as we continue to, um, industrialize and, but, but we are looking for more, um, i think that there is a growing sentiment for environmentally um better forms of uh resource use which is which is excellent um what 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 is the vetting process like when it comes to assessing the fe- feasibility and potential impacts of these ideas like developing a secondary market for um, for a carbon permit for carbon um allowances
1: oh gosh do you mean uh, internally or
2: No, no, for like FOGO. So I I noted that, um, that there's a, there's a criteria that, um, not all ideas that get that go through FOGO will be, um, taken up to the people in power who can implement the ideas. So what's your team's like criteria that you use ideas?
1: I don't know that we have formalized those yet. It's uh, I think it's formalizing that is going, is, uh, one thing that we'll be doing uh, early next year, but it's a, it's a combination of uh, like the, the the potential impact of, of the idea, how much can it uh, can it achieve, and its uh, feasibility. So how likely is it that it will be uh, that it will be uh, done or completed? Originality is something that we look at, like is it something that hasn't been heard before, and therefore that might have this extra like exponential capacity to transform simply because it, it kind of opens new possibilities. Um, and then looking at whether it takes into consideration questions of, like, how, how will it improve decision-making and, and how can those decisions, if made, then be enforced? Uh, so like balancing that kind of idealism of, of getting together, and then that realism of then what, when it comes to transforming the world, what are, what kind of mechanisms does it, does it draw on so that people actually um, adopt it and, 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 trans- and, and that it transforms systems, behaviours, et cetera.
2: That makes a lot of sense. Um, mm. Thank you very much for that. Uh, do, we, do we have time for one more? I, 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 was, just, I was just curious about um, how you've established connections personally with those people, um, with people in positions of power who could actually implement these ideas.
1: So a lot of, uh, those were built when we were working with, the with the foundation, um, part of the work that we, that we did was actually engage with, with people of power. So my role there was as editor-in-chief to create uh, a regular publication that would kind of look at questions of global risk and global governance from different angles. And with the publication, we were able to reach out to uh, people. So we had, uh, couple of uh, like ministers, former uh, prime ministers, we had also uh, people in the U.N., bureaucrats, etc., and people in, in technology. Uh, and kind of inviting people to write is a good way to uh, get those connections. Also, what was very lucky is, because we were working on the basis of five million, uh, a $5 million prize, when you have a, a large sum of money, people have listened more. So through that, we have been able, but simply not, not because they're directly attracted by the money, but because it shows that somebody is serious about it and because it, it creates the sense that transformation is actually possible uh, because there will be the resources to bring something about. And so through that, we have built personal networks with a range of, of uh, those people. We had been cultivating them before through different roles, jobs, et cetera. Um, but there is also... A, an appetite or an interest. Like there's, um, I think there's an anxiety in, in, in a lot of places of power because people are very aware that systems need to change, change fast, change deeply, and don't necessarily know how to get that done. And so uh, whenever we're talking with people, there seems to be an appetite for what we're doing that, that corresponds to a, a, deep, a, a deep need for
0: transformation um yeah um, julian so just to finish off our interview um we would just like to ask you one question and this is a classic question which we ask literally everyone that comes here essentially what that question is is if you could leave the youth with just one piece of advice what would that one piece of, of advice actually be so I, i'm trying
1: to find the right way of presenting it um but one way I would i would talk about it is less effort, more presence. And, and other one would be, uh, work less, cultivate your judgment. Another one to express it would be, remember that deciding is not the same thing as doing and that what's important is what you decide more than what you do. Uh, so, uh, and another version of that is cultivate your faculty to make good judgment rather than, uh, anything else and exert that faculty. Um, Yes, and I will sum it up in the first thing. Less effort, don't push so hard, more presence. Think about what's happening around you. Listen more.
2: Thanks for listening in. This podcast has been brought to you by Desair, a platform designed to bridge the gap between the youth and profession. You can read more about us at desair.org. And you can also check out the section titled Insights with Experts, where you can submit your questions that you might have for future experts and industries that you would like to learn more about. And you can also refer in any experts that you might know yourself.
0: ORACUI aims to provide a global student mentoring platform. Whether it's academic subjects, locations, or interests, our algorithm provides curated one-on-one matches between high school mentees and university mentors. With a pre-launch presence of mentors from some of the world's best universities, Orakui aims to connect students on an international level. You can sign up to either be a mentee or a mentor at orakui.com.